Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris. I am the pastor and uh, delighted to welcome you. All of you in Cafe Worship, Matt Best, we love you guys so much. Uh, enter into worship together with us now. Take your Bibles and open up to the book of the Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. This is the second in a message in a series entitled The Four Seasons of Marriage. We did springtime last week. The early phase, a honeymoon phase of marriage. Today, we're going to move into summer. I don't really know exactly uh, if it's possible to talk about uh, when one stage turns into another. I, I don't think that the honeymoon phase lasts the same amount of time for everybody. I, I just don't know. We talked about that chemical buzz that comes with that early, early phase. And, and I don't know how long that lasts. Scientists say maybe six months, maybe two years. But at some point, inevitably, springtime will turn into summer, and summertime will turn into fall, and fall will turn into winter. It's just the the facts of life when it comes to being married to the same person over a lifetime, which is, of course, the marriage vow. Uh, If I'm going to be married to Casey Harris for the rest of my life, that's, that's I, I hope, another, gosh, I don't know, 30 years, 25 years or so. We've been married 26 years. Uh, that's a long, long time. And, and these seasons can, can last for years. And now as we move into summer today, this is probably that phase of life which for many couples is taken up with raising kids and going through those first early changes of marriage. So this is probably an 18 or 20-year phase in itself. But in, in, inevitably, it comes, and let's jump right in to it. Song of Solomon chapter 5 is where we'll begin. We're going to start with verse 8. Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 8. As I said last week, the Song of Solomon is, of course, uh, a collection of love poems. It's, it's several poems. It's not exactly one long poem that tells a story. It's, it's nothing like that at all. It's just a, a combination of, of sometimes erotic love poetry. It's really a lot of fun to read. Uh, in the Song of Solomon, often uh, the speaker will change. First, the man will talk about the woman, and then the woman will talk about the man. And uh, if you're following like New Living Translation, it will tell you which one is speaking. It's kind of like a drama or a play. But follow along. This is good stuff. We're going to start in chapter 5, verse 8, and and then I'll walk right on into when the man starts talking, and that always gets good. Chapter 5, verse 8. Make this promise, O women of Jerusalem. If you find my lover, tell him I am weak with love. I am sick with love, she says. Isn't that awesome? The women answer, why is your lover better than all others, O woman of rare beauty? What makes your lover so special that we must promise this? Okay, what follows is the woman talking about the man. And this is always really, really good. Now, now some of you guys, this is what you get every day. Your wife wakes up saying this stuff. Um, but, but actually, we don't always hear it very, very often. Uh, this is like back, back in the 90s, there was a, a hip-hop girl band called Salt and Peppa. Anybody remember Salt and Peppa? And they did a song called What a Man. Do you, do you, anybody remember that? Listen to Papa. I'll tell you about music in the old days. Salt and Peppa did a song called What a Man. And it's just like this. Now, in Salt and Peppa's song, it was like, uh, my man is smooth like Barry and his voice got bass. A body like Arnold with a Denzel feet. Y'all remember that? A Denzel face. Yeah, I want to take a minute or two to show much respect due to the man who's made a difference in my world. It was a good song. It's probably better when a woman sings it. (laughs) 
but I just want to show you that this is like that. This is exactly like that. The woman is now describing her man to the young women who are given the task of trying to find him for her. And here we go. This is so good. The woman's talking. My lover is dark and dazzling, better than 10,000 others. His head is finest gold. His wavy hair is black as a raven. His eyes sparkle like doves beside springs of water. They are set like jewels washed in milk. His cheeks are like gardens of spices giving off fragrance. His lips are like lilies perfumed with myrrh. His arms are like rounded bars of gold set with barrel. I don't even know what barrel is, but that's awesome. His body is like bright ivory glowing with lapis lazuli. His legs are like marble pillars set in sockets of finest gold. His posture is stately. His like the noble cedars of Lebanon, his mouth is sweetness itself. He is desirable in every way. Such, O women of Jerusalem, is my lover, my friend. That's so good. Where is your lover gone, O woman of rare beauty? Which way did he turn so we can help you find him? Again, she speaks, my lover has gone down to his garden, to his spice beds, to browse in the gardens and gather the lilies, I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. He browses among the lilies. Okay, now the man's going to talk. You know how when a man talks, he just probably shouldn't have? And this is one of those instances. This woman is so good at describing him. He, I, I don't know, maybe it's a cultural thing, but you'll notice that when he describes her, he, he's, we'll start in verse 5 with me. Turn your eyes away, for they overpower me. That, that's good. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Maybe in that culture to say, you know, you remind me of goats would be a good thing. Get this. Your teeth are as white as sheep that are freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth matched with its twin. Did he just say, you got all your teeth, girl? (laughs) This is how you know they're from Logan County right there. You got... All your teeth. You, my girl, all your teeth. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Get this. Even among 60 queens and 80 concubines and countless young women, I would still choose you, my dove, my perfect one. He finished well. He finished well. He started out rough. He he finished well. Finishing well is, of course, um, what we want to do in marriage. Starting out well is important in itself, especially if you want to finish well. As springtime of marriage turns into summer, one of the things you have to recognize is that you are beginning habits. You are beginning to settle in together. And very, very honestly, the way you start is more than likely the way you're going to continue. You are starting out with habits. Right before we got married, I mean, right before we got married, my mother-in-law, Sue, pulled Casey, her daughter, aside and and just gave these words of wisdom for marriage. And they actually turned out to be very wise. She just said, Casey, whatever you do, don't start something in marriage that you don't want to be doing the rest of your life, like ironing. (laughs) 
That's, that's what she said. Don't, don't start anything that you don't want to be doing for the rest of your life like ironing. Ironing was her example, and it's a very good example. And for that reason, Casey never started ironing. In our marriage, we've always ironed our own things. It's just not something that she started. Because understand, in a marriage, once you start something, you're probably going to continue that for the rest of your married life together. And that's very, very important to realize because habits are powerful. And the habits that you establish in the spring, in the summer time of your marriage are going to be the habits you're going to have to sustain you for many, many years to come through richer and poor, through sickness and health. You've got a long way to go and your habits more than likely are going to be what is going to sustain you through these very, very uh, important years that you have together. So go back with me. Go back with me to verse 16 when the woman speaks in chapter 5. I want to call your attention to this one more time. She's talking about her man, her husband. She says, his mouth is sweetness itself. He is desirable in every way. Such a woman of Jerusalem is my lover, my, say it, friend. My lover, my friend. My lover, my friend. The friendship is the soul of your marriage. I, I can't say that enough. It is the friendship that is the soul of the marriage. I have presided over a lot of weddings in my life as a pastor. I have presided over a number of divorces as well. I have never seen a couple divorce that did not say they loved each other. They will frequently say, I suppose I'll always love him. The problem is I don't like him. I suppose I'll always love her. She's a mother of my children, but I cannot live with her. Do you understand? Marriages do not fail for lack of love. Marriages fail for lack of friendship. And it is these habits of friendship that you must establish and establish early, especially as you move into the summertime, those child-rearing, child-raising years of marriage. Because I'm telling you, once you add children, everything goes crazy. Everything goes crazy. And at that point, the friendship of your marriage sort of has its first test. And a lot of marriages struggle in those summertime years, in those raising children years, because it's the friendship that's so difficult. Difficult to sustain when you have the burden and responsibility of, of raising children. You see, the thing is, the friendship begins to be sacrificed for the sake of the partnership in raising children. But you cannot let the friendship die. You have to make sure you always nurture the friendship. If I can say something to fathers for a second, Father, the very best thing you can ever do for your kids is to love their mother as your best friend. And the same thing goes for mom. The best thing you can ever do for your children is to love their father as your best friend. The temptation when kids come on, because they're just so cute, and honestly, you just want to make your whole world revolve around the children, but children were not created to be the center of your world, and children are not given you so that they can become the center of your marriage. A child-centered marriage always goes off track. At the very center of the marriage, at the center of the family, is always this man and woman who love each other till death. That is what marriage is, and that is what's at the center of the family. You can't sacrifice the friendship, the relationship of mother and father, understand, for the sake of the children. You simply can't. So you need to establish these habits of friendship early on in your marriage so that they can sustain you through all of the changes and all of the years to come. Let's talk about habits of friendship. First, I would say communication. Communication. You need habits 
of communication. It just needs to become your way of being together that you talk, that you talk frequently, that you talk about everything that might even be remotely important to one of you or both of you. You just got to talk. You have to communicate. Lots and lots of couples start out communicating, but then they, they lose that habit or they don't establish that habit in those summertime years. You have to establish habits of communication. You just have to know how to talk. You have to know how to listen. You have to know how to make sure that you share your heart with one another. Now, sometimes if you don't establish good habits, you'll establish bad habits. And I could say that when it comes to communication, there are some toxic habits. There are things that you could start doing that would be related to communication, but that would destroy your relationship. I'd say one of the toxic habits that couples fall into is what I would call mind reading. Mind reading is when you go, I I know what she's thinking. I saw her and I know exactly what she's thinking. You don't know what she's thinking. Sir, if you haven't learned anything yet, you don't ever know what she's thinking. You you understand? Don't assume that you do. And and man, I would say the same thing to you. Don't expect him to read your mind. Well, he just ought to know. He should have known that would make me mad. Well, maybe he should have. But the point is, it is your responsibility to communicate what's on your mind. It is not his responsibility to read your mind, and you cannot expect that this marriage is going to be in any way furthered by mind reading. You can't do it, and you can't expect the other one to do it. You have to communicate. You have to speak your mind. You have to ask for what you need. Do you understand? You are responsible to do your own communicating. You you can't expect people to read minds. The other thing is kind of related to mind reading, but it's more when you just sort of drop hints. I drop hints. In other words, Casey might leave the Swiffer by the refrigerator and thinking that when I come by to get food, I'm going to think, oh, I should Swiffer the house. Okay. I'm never going to get that hint. I will never connect seeing the Swiffer with Swiffering the house. That's just not the way my mind works. When Casey sees Swiffer, she thinks Swiffering. When I see the Swiffer, I think, move that thing, i got to get in the fridge. You understand? So you can't drop hints. You can't just sort of subtly lay it out there and, and hope that he or she will pick up on what you're thinking. You understand? And if you fall into these habits early, bad habits of communication, your marriage is really going to struggle because these are the habits that are going to see you through for years to come. Understand? So communication habits are very, very important for the the friendship. Second, I would say, would be habits of consideration. You have to learn to be considerate of one another. Now, that just sounds like common courtesy, and it is. But here's the problem. We end up, in marriage often, we, we end up sometimes treating total strangers with more consideration than we treat our own spouse. And that's always a bad sign. Do you understand? When you're a better man to other people than you are to your own wife, then there's something seriously wrong with your heart, sir. Do you understand? You want habits of consideration. In other words, I want my wife to know that I think about her, that I consider her. And that I consider how my words affect her. I consider how my choices, my actions affect her. I want her to know, but by my habits, that I think of her, that I consider her in everything. And I need to know that she thinks of me, that she considers me, that she's considerate of me. 
Now again, if you don't fall into those habits of consideration, you'll probably fall into other habits. And those are just the habits where you sort of begin to live separate lives. You don't do anything together. You don't think of the other. You just sort of do your thing and she does her thing. And I'm telling you, in marriage, you need to have one thing. You need to have a life that you share together. That doesn't mean you can't spend a little bit of time apart But the point is, you want habits of consideration. You want a life that you share. You want important things that you share together. Friendship depends upon a life that's shared together. Understand? So you want habits of communication, habits of consideration, and last, I would say, habits of commitment. Commitment is, of course, the big promise you make at the front end of the marriage, but commitment is also all of the tiny little choices, all of the tiny little habits that make up your every day. And you want to make sure that that in every choice, in, in every action, in every one of your days, you're continuing to choose her. You're continuing to choose him, that you are continuing to put all of yourself in this marriage. You want habits of commitment in order to have the trust necessary for a friendship. You know, if you want to talk about toxic habits related to commitment, I've seen couples that, um, I don't know a better way to put it, it's like one or the other will hold the marriage hostage. You know, in a hostage situation, somebody's got like a kid or a woman with a gun to her head and say, okay, back off or I'll kill her. It's that sort of thing. Get away or she's going to be gone. You understand? And there are people who hold the marriage hostage. In other words, if you don't please me, this marriage is over. I'm out of here. They continue to hold the marriage hostage. In other words, the one who begins to do that robs the other person, their partner, of any ability to trust that they're going to be here tomorrow or the next day or years down the road. If a person is always letting their spouse know that they could walk, then it's rather impossible to have the trust and confidence necessary for a friendship, not to mention a a marriage. You, You understand? That there are daily habits that add up to friendship. And in the summertime, in that second phase of marriage, it's still early. You are laying down habits that are going to have to see you through the rest of your married life. Make sure that they are habits that add up to friendship. Such a woman of Jerusalem is my lover, my friend, she says in verse 16. Look at now into chapter 6, verse 3. I love this, and this is a very important, very important principle when it comes to marriage in Scripture. Verse 3 says, I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. It sounds just like a very poetic thing to say, and it is. I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. But this simple phrase is the kind of thing that is repeated throughout Scripture when it comes to marriage And it adds up to what I would call the principle of mutuality. Mutuality. And in the Bible's design for marriage, mutuality is probably one of the most essential ingredients of marriage. Mutuality. What does mutuality mean? Somebody tell me, what does it mean to be in a mutual relationship? Anybody? Say it again. Yeah, you agree on same things? 
Yeah, I am my lover, my lover is mine. We, we agree on things. What else? What's it mean to be mutual? Both pulling the cart in the same direction together. Absolutely, we're in this thing together. I am my lover's, my lover is mine. I think I would define a mutual relationship in the sense that in a mutual relationship, both of you are in the same relationship. And here's the key. When it comes to mutuality, I would say that the rewards and the sacrifices of the marriage are shared equally. Rewards and sacrifices are shared equally. Now, at any point in a marriage, when the rewards and sacrifices are not being shared equally, at that point, the marriage has taken a turn for the worse. You understand? Let let me walk you through some things with Scripture. First off, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. This is the beginning of that long passage in Ephesians 5 that talks about family. Usually, preachers will start this whole section with verse 22 that says, wives submit to husbands, because that's just so delicious. Understand? But this this section actually starts with verse 21. And if you don't start with verse 21, you're not going to understand what verse 22 means. Understand? You have to start with verse 21 that says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another. There is this amazing one anotherness in the Bible's view of marriage, and part of that is is mutual submission. It is not that the rewards and sacrifices are divided so that one person does most of the sacrificing and the other partner gets most of the rewards. That's not the Bible's design for marriage. There's a one anotherness to it. And and even when it comes to the submission, the the first thing to say about submission in marriage is that it is a mutual agreement. You submit to one another because that is how Christ was. Christ himself submitted to the incarnation, submitted to death on a cross, submitted to, to, to what he must suffer for our sake. He gave his life for us. So since Christ is everybody's example, then everybody imitates Christ through submission. That's the New Testament. And that's the first thing that you must say about marriage. It involves mutual submission. So understand, there's a mutuality that's very, very important. Now, if we can do this without anybody freaking out, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And if you might freak out, take a deep breath now. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's not just mutual submission. The Bible talks about mutual pleasure. Don't freak out. Chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. I actually like this. We should put this in calligraphy over our bed, Casey. This would be so good. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3. You have to understand how radical these verses would be in the ancient world. You have to understand that. But this is what Paul says. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. Understand, mutual. The husband should take care of the wife. The wife should take care of the husband. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. What Paul says there is that the wife's body doesn't just belong to her. It belongs to her husband. Isn't that awesome? 
But then it goes on. And the husband's body does not belong only to him, but also to the wife. Now, Paul's giving principles there for for an ethic of Christian sexuality, which I'm not going to go into today. but, But understand that the principle is mutuality. That the principle there is that you're in this together and that the rewards and the sacrifices are to be equal. Mutuality is the essential ingredient to Christian marriage. Which is why it's sort of troubling that, that in our day and age, a lot of marriages don't seem to turn out that way. And I'll repeat, in the very moment when the rewards and the sacrifices in marriage are not shared equally, your marriage has taken a turn for the worse. I have seen marriages where where the husband would have to make all of the sacrifices and the woman would be receiving all of the benefits. But I would probably say more often it's the other way around. That in our culture, it's often the man who seems to receive a lot of the rewards and it's the woman who must, must make most of the sacrifices. In a recent survey of women in the United States, married women in the United States, women say that they, that they felt like the key to their marriage was simply their learning to be nice about everything. In other words, women often learn just to suck it up, just simply to recognize that they've got to be flexible, they've got to make the sacrifices, and they have to always be nice because the moment they get fed up, the moment they push back, the moment that they don't necessarily want to continue making all the sacrifices, he'll say she's changed. The man will say the marriage is no longer satisfying. Do you understand how lopsided a lot of marriages are? Now, now, sir, I I respect you, and and I respect very much the the, the role of the man in in, in the marriage. And to say that it's mutual doesn't mean that we don't have different roles. I'm not saying that we don't have different roles to play. I'm simply saying that when it comes to sacrifices and rewards, these things should be equal. Nobody should have the right to come in from work, pile up in a chair, and say, what's for supper? Did you understand? That's just not how marriage is supposed to work. Nobody should be expected to make all of the sacrifices. No one partner should have to always be the one to take care of the kids, wash the dishes, swiffer the house, you understand, change the oil while somebody else just gets to to gripe and complain and, and rule the roost. That's not the Bible's picture of marriage at all. While we're in Ephesians 5, look at verse 25. It's just always fun to do. Ephesians 5, 25 says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. So if you really want to talk about different roles in marriage, the husband's role is to make the sacrifices. If there's a sacrifice to be made, sir, that's your job. Because you're supposed to love her just like Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her. So understand, sir, if you want to lead your house, if you want to lead this woman, lead this marriage, you lead by sacrificing. You don't lead by becoming the boss. You don't lead by ruling the roost. That is not Christ's model anywhere that you've been asked to imitate. You imitate Christ by sacrificing and serving. And when you have a marriage where both partners are committed to sharing the sacrifices and sharing the rewards, that's going to be a very, very happy life. Did you not agree with that? When both partners are in it together, serving one another, loving each other like Christ, that's got to be a 
pretty good relationship. It comes down to mutuality. I am my lover's, and my lover is mine. I said when the man starts talking, he messes up, and he does. I guess he doesn't. It's a cultural thing. In one place, he tells her she looks like a horse, and I think she's flattered. So so I I don't know. But I love what he says in verse 9. I would still choose you. Even among 60 queens, among 80 concubines, countless young women, all of the women in the world, line them up. I'd still choose you. I guess it's in the summertime of marriage. When you add kids or or add the first big changes, whatever it is that that begins to push your marriage further down the road and and, and deeper into one another. At some point, you're going to learn that love is more choice than feeling. Some people don't learn it very well. Some people give up when the feelings are gone. But at some point, if you're going to become a grown-up, and if you're going to ever understand what marriage is, and if you're ever going to know what love is, eventually you're going to have to learn that love is more choice than feeling. I said last week that in that honeymoon phase, in the early phase, there is physically, biochemically, this rush of, of, of hormones, this rush of chemicals in your brain that cause you to feel this euphoria, this bliss together. And that's God's design to give you that early phase to bond and become a team and to become friends. That friendship's got to last a long, long time. But I'm telling you, the friendship lasts. The euphoria doesn't. That, that blissful honeymoon feeling, at some point, it, it sort of begins to, to fade. And the problem with a lot of people is that they've learned to associate that person with, with those feelings, that, that, that euphoria. So in the euphoria, when the honeymoon begins to fade, they assume that the love is fading. They associate that fading of feelings with the person. So I come back to my wife and say, listen, we got to get that back. Something's got to change. I don't feel the same way about you. And understand, people begin to positively panic sometimes when the feelings change. But, but I need to tell you, the feelings always change. Feelings come and go. You can't trust feelings. And that's why at the marriage ceremony, you never made any promises about how you would feel. Because you can't promise how you would feel. What you promised was that you would stay. What you promised is that you would love, and love is something you can choose. I mean, it's what he says. Even among countless young women, I still choose you. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. Turn back just a couple of pages. This is a great verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 9. Get what this says, and understand that this is a command. Sentence form is a command, and this is what it says. Live happily. Live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. The wife God gives you is your reward. Live happily with this woman. It's a command. 
Now, you would think on the one hand that you can't command happiness, that you can't command that. Live happily with the woman you love through all the days of life that God has given you. Can you really command that? Live happily. Just live happily. Just be happy with that woman that you love through all the days. Just just live with her, love her, and be happy. Is that really a choice? I'm saying yes. Because I don't think God would command it if it's not a choice. You have to choose this. You choose happiness, and you choose happiness with this one, with this man, with this woman, and you choose to love her. You choose to love him, and sometimes it's going to be a daily choice. You're going to make a new choice every single day, but the choice is to love. The choice is to live happily. The choice is to stay. Now, now honestly, when you say you're going to choose to live happily, that doesn't make it easy. If it were easy, everybody would be happy. But honestly, happiness is something that you build together. And it takes time. And it takes sacrifice. And sometimes it takes a lot of tears. I'm telling you, it's not instant. But if you will stay together, if you will choose each other, continue to choose each other, I'm saying you can have this. You can live happily through all the days. And notice that the phrase is through all the days you got to get through some days. you got to get through some stuff. And as I said last week, and it never, ever, ever is not true, everything changes all of the time. And the real key to marriage is learning how to make it through the changes. The real key to marriage is learning how to change together. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever be asked to do. Now, in the summertime of marriage, most of the changes are still really positive, but that doesn't mean they're not really stressful. In the summertime of marriage, you've got to make a lot of choices about raising the kids and and how you'll discipline the kids and how you divide the roles with the children, and none of these are easy things. They're joyful, they're wonderful, but, but not easy. In this summertime of marriage, you make very, very important financial decisions. And some couples don't make choices around money very easily. But, but if you'll communicate and consider one another and stay committed, you, you can make it through all of this. Understand. You're going to go through some things, and the changes are, are difficult, but the changes are, are the test of your marriage. You have to learn to go through these changes together. Because let me tell you, There are some more difficult changes down the road for you. Some very, very difficult days ahead. But you still have a choice. In your heart of heart, married man, let me just ask you. If you had to do it over, knowing what you know now, would you choose her again? Would you marry her all over because this is what the lover says in the Song of Solomon? Out of all the women in the world, Angelina Jolie, Shania Twain, Rihanna, I'd still choose you. Understand? This man, I don't know how long they've been together at this point, but, but he doesn't compare his wife to all the women of the world. He compares all the women of the world to her. Understand? She's still the perfect one for him. I'd I'd still choose you. Sir, would you say that? 
ma'am, would you say that? Knowing what you know now, I know that when you dated, he was a different guy. He was always on time when you dated, and he never passed gas in front of you. You had no idea what could come out of that man. I mean, he didn't burp. He, he was a perfect gentleman. And then now, that creature on the couch, you know. He's been through some things with you now, and you know each other better. Would you still choose him now? Love is more choice than feeling. And the choices you're making right now are going to determine the happiness you share together for the rest of your married lives. The Bible says live happily together. Love each other through all the days God gives you under the sun. It's a choice. And it's a choice you have to be willing to make every single day looking back at that man, looking back at that woman and saying, after everything we've been through, the man I've become, the woman you've become, I still choose you. In the summertime of marriage, you've been through some stuff and you have more stuff to go through. The important thing is to keep choosing each other. Pray with me. Lord God, it is you who is the God of love, and it's you who shows us what love is. And you are the God who sent your one and only son to die for us. You sacrificed your life for our sake. You laid aside everything that had to do with your divinity for the sake of taking on humanity that you might save us. You did this in the name of love for the sake of love. Lord, we who say that we are in love, we who say that we love our husband, our, our, our wife, Lord, we often show by our actions that we know very, very little about what love is. We shrink back when it's time to do hard things. We leave it to the other one to make the sacrifices, Lord. We often hold the relationship hostage, always thinking in our minds that we might still step away. But God, I pray that husbands and wives in this church, husbands and wives in the sound of my voice will not step away, but will always with every day, with every choice, step closer to one another. Make the sacrifices that love requires and share the rewards that love brings. I pray, Lord Jesus, that husbands and wives will consider their daily habits and make sure that they nurture habits of friendship. Habits of sacrifice, habits of mutuality that allow them to live happily together through all of these days. Lord, life is hard and marriage is hard, but love is so beautiful and costly. Lord, most of us who live long enough soon recognize that love can break your heart. We also recognize that love 